today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Jesus said in John 8, that Satan is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. Those who are most in his crosshair are particularly the Jewish people because Satan understands that God's redemptive plan was unfolded through a Jewish people and in particular a Jewish Messiah, Jesus. That is why in Revelation 12, 4, it tells us that the dragon, who is Satan, is perched, ready to devour the child that the woman gives birth to the moment that that child is born. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Esther. It is no coincidence that all throughout history, There have been madmen always desiring to eradicate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. From the time of Esther to the era of Hitler, and even today, we have leaders and nations calling for the destruction of Israel. Today, Pastor Gary will be explaining that since the Garden of Eden, it was prophesied that there would be conflict between God's redemptive plan and Satan. The devil will do everything he can to try to destroy God's promises from coming to pass. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Esther chapter 3 for part one of today's message titled, For Such a Time as This. Esther chapter 3. Here in Esther chapter 3, we are introduced to a wicked man among the Persian nobles whose name is Haman. Last week, we were briefly introduced to him when I read the first few verses from chapter 3. But now we're going to notice how he plays a very pivotal role in the rest of the book of Esther. And I mean pivotal in the most detrimental way. Uh, Haman is an angry man. He is a vicious man. He is an anti-Semitic prejudicial man. And we're going to see how that plays out in this story and how God intervenes on behalf of the Jews. But what we're going to notice here in chapter 3 is that Haman's pride gets stepped on by one man. And instead of Haman being angry just at that one man, Haman is angry at that man and the race that that man represents. The man is Mordecai and his race are the Jewish people. And so here in chapter 3, I'm going to read all of it. It's only 15 verses, but just let the word of the Lord minister to you. But you will see here this story as it unfolds here. Esther 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. And then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet 
having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all the other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business." So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of the king Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The hatred of another race is not only prejudicial, but in this particular story, it is also anti-Semitic. Prejudice in general, and anti-Semitism in particular, is rooted and inspired in Satan himself. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that Satan is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. Those who are most in his crosshair are particularly the Jewish people because Satan understands that God's redemptive plan was unfolded through a Jewish people and in particular a Jewish Messiah, Jesus. That is why in Revelation 12, 4, It tells us that the dragon, who is Satan, is perched, ready to devour the child that the woman gives birth to the moment that that child is born. And it is symbolism to represent in Revelation 12, 4, that the dragon is Satan, the woman is Israel, and the child that she gives birth to are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Satan has always been perched, ready to destroy the Jewish people. This is not something new. This is not something old. This is something that has been going on since Satan has been inspiring people to hate those of another race. And in context of this story, in particular, to hate the Jewish people. And Haman is one such individual who has fallen under the inspiration of Satan in his hatred, in his animosity, in the vitriol he has toward the Jewish people. And here's how it started. Haman gets promoted by King Xerxes as one of the chief nobles of Persia. And it goes to Haman's head. And there's this edict that is passed that everybody needs to bow down to Haman when he walks through the gates. And that's what people would do, except Mordecai. Mordecai is Jewish, 
Mordecai understands that he only bows down to the true and living God. Yes, show respect for people, but you don't bow down as if you're worshiping another individual. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman when he passes through the city gates. Haman, the Bible says, becomes so enraged at Mordecai, but he doesn't just get enraged at Mordecai. He takes it a step further. He gets enraged at the people that Mordecai represents. Mordecai being a Jew, Haman now hates all Jews. You know, that's really the, the, the characteristic of prejudice. When one person might offend you, and now you are hateful about all the people that that one person represents. Okay, this is Haman. He's angry not just at Mordecai because he wasn't bowed down to. He's also angry at the people that Mordecai represents. And so Haman goes into the presence of King Xerxes. Now as this royal official, he has access to the king. And he communicates to the king without naming the Jews. He just says, there's some unnamed people here in your province. And the Persian Empire is the largest at this time. It was the world-dominating power. And Haman says, there's some people within your kingdom, great Xerxes, who, number one, their customs are different. Number two, they don't obey your laws. Now, that's partially true. Number one, their customs are different. They are Jews living within the Persian Empire, and so their customs are a little different. They're Jewish. But it isn't true that they were disobeying the laws of the king. Only one guy disobeyed the laws of the king, and that was Mordecai. But again, that's how prejudice goes. You know, listen, when you're out fighting rush hour traffic and you might find yourself on, you know, Route 7 somewhere around the toll road or maybe you're on the beltway and somebody cuts you off, you know, because other people are always worse drivers than you, right? You know that, right? Everybody else is an idiot except the way you drive. But when somebody cuts you off, you're, you're angry at them, maybe. You're like, I can't believe this. Thing. Why can't they? Where do they get their driver's license? You know, and you're going through all this kind of... But you're not hating everybody that they represent. You just don't like them at that moment. But Haman has taken it up to another level here, where he not only hates Mordecai, he hates all the people that Mordecai represents. And he convinces Xerxes to issue an edict to kill all these people whose customs are different and who disobey the laws of the king. Now, Xerxes should have investigated it further. He should have been asking some questions like, what people are you talking about? What have they done? Let me have a little bit more information. But instead, he just agrees with Haman. And Haman sweetens the deal by offering to give 10,000 talents of his own personal silver as reward money for the army that kills all these people. Haman says, rather, King Xerxes says, Haman, you can keep your money. And here's my signet ring. And he takes off the signet ring, which was necessary as the seal of the king so that any written edict would be recognized as official business. And oftentimes, you know, it was pressed into soft wax and some document was sealed so they would know this is official business. So Xerxes takes off his signet ring, gives it to Haman, says, write up the edict, seal it with my signet ring, have all these people killed. And that's what Haman does. And it says, again in verse 13, look again in verse 13, it says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now it tells us that this particular month was chosen by the casting of the lot. Uh, this is like kind of like throwing dice, all right? And so, you know, there Haman is, and he casts the lot. The Hebrew word for lot is pur, P-U-R. The plural for lots is purim. 
Now, the Feast of Purim is something the Jews still celebrate today. It's discussed more at the end of the book, so we'll save it for then. But he casts a lot, determines the month that these people are supposed to be annihilated, the Jewish people, and a day is set. The edict is proclaimed in all the various languages of the provinces that are a part of the empire of Persia. Now, folks, aside from wartime conflict, when nations generally want to destroy nations, this is the first time in the Bible where there is this intentional effort to annihilate the Jews solely on the basis of deep-seated animosity and hatred. First time. But it won't be the last. Why is it that among several ancient cultures, if you know a little bit about world history, why is it that there's such disparaging differences between populations? When you look, for example, at the Chinese who have been around, around, they trace their heritage back about 5,000 years. How many Chinese are there today in the world? About 1.2 billion. You look at the people of India who also trace their heritage back about 5,000 years. How many Indians are there in, their, in the world? About 1 billion. But you look at the Jews who trace their heritage back also about 5,000 years. How many Jews are there in the world today? Not 1.2 billion, not 1 billion, but approximately 14 million. That's it. And even slightly more Jews live in the United States than do live in Israel. About 6.5 million live in the United States, about 6 to 7 million in Israel, and the, the difference scattered around the rest of the world, mainly through Europe. Why is it that there are 1.2 billion Chinese, 1 billion Indians, and only 14 million Jews? The answer is because the Jewish people have been hated and slaughtered and dispersed from their homeland, unlike any other ancient people group. And it wasn't until 1948, which was a miracle in fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37, when the Jewish people reasserted their claim to the land of Israel and came back and gathered together the dry bones that took on flesh, Ezekiel 37 talks about, and the nation again took form that was a miraculous thing. And again, it's because the Jewish people have been dispersed, they've been slaughtered, they have been scattered around the world. And whether it was Haman or Hitler, or whether it is Hamas or Hezbollah, there has been a concerted effort over the centuries inspired by Satan for the annihilation of the Jews. On Israel's 60th birthday a few years ago, the then president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, issued a statement on the 60th anniversary of Israel. Ahmadinejad said this, quote, those who think they can revive the stinking corpse of the usurping and fake Israeli regime by throwing a birthday party are seriously mistaken. Today, the reason for the Zionist regime's existence is questioned, and this regime is on its way to annihilation, end quote. Ayatollah Khamenei said that Israel will be destroyed within the next 25 years. Khamenei said, quote, Allah willing, there will be no such thing as a Zionist regime in 25 years. Until then, struggling, heroic, and jihadi morale will leave no moment of serenity for the Zionists. End quote. Zionists, a backhanded reference to them as Jews. Iran launched two test ballistic missiles in defiance of the most recent Iran nuclear agreement, whatever that means. They fired two ballistic test missiles, and on one of the missiles, they wrote in Hebrew, quote, 
Israel must be destroyed, end quote. Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, said, quote, It must be understood what our problem with Iran is. It is not just its policy of subversion and aggression in the region. It is the values on which it is based. It denies and belittles the Holocaust, and it is also preparing another Holocaust, end quote. And I share some of these modern news quotes because I want you to realize the incredible similarity between the book of Esther and the greatest potential threat to the safety and security of Israel today. Because here we are 2,500 years later after this story, and the greatest threat to the security and safety of Israel and the Jews today is still Persia. It is still Persia. Listen, the region that we're talking about called Iran today has only been called the the um, Islamic Republic of Iran since 1935. Before 1935, this land was always called Persia. So we're talking the same country, we're talking the same territory, just the names have changed. The supreme leader used to be King Xerxes. Now it is Ayatollah Khamenei. The chief noble used to be Haman. And now it is Hassan Rouhani as president of Iraq. But the threat is still the same. There is a deep-seated hatred of the Jewish people. When I first started the book of Esther a couple of weeks ago, I had a man come up to me after the Saturday night service who will remain anonymous. He asked me to remain anonymous. You'll understand as I tell the story, but he gave me permission to tell the story. He is a special advisor to the president on international affairs. And he said to me that he was at a White House dinner in 2012 when President Obama hosted a dinner with Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And the man, as he relays this story to me, said that it is customary at the end of dinners hosted at the White House where the president gives a gift to the dignitary that's been invited and the dignitary gives a gift to the president. And he said to me that after the dinner was over, he was standing next to the president and the prime minister as they were exchanging gifts. And he said to me, I don't even remember what the president's gift was to Netanyahu, but he says, I remember what the gift was that Netanyahu gave to the president. The president unwrapped it, and Netanyahu had given the president a copy of the book of Esther in Hebrew. And the man said to me, he says, you know, except if you have a biblical view, you won't understand, but the not-so-subtle message that he recognized that Netanyahu was obviously communicating to President Obama was this. Mr. President, we need to take seriously the threat from Iran who has determined to wipe Israel off the face of the map because Persia tried it once before and Persia is going to try it again. Now, personally, I think that America should be as pro-Israel as we possibly can be. I think that we should be on the side of what God has said in Genesis 12:3: I will bless those who bless Israel and I will curse those who curse Israel. So I think personally as a nation, we should be intentional about being supportive and a good ally of Israel. That said... Israel doesn't need the United States. Psalm 122 verse 4 says that he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Israel has a better friend than the United States. Israel has God. And Israel will be defended by him who neither slumbers nor sleeps because he will always watch over Israel. But here's what God has determined to do. He often determines to express his divine and providential purposes through people. Enters Queen Esther into this story. Now, much of the rest of what I'm going to explain in the time we have left is from chapter 4 of Esther. But here's what happens. 
First of all, I want you to again remember what I mentioned last week in our study. I want you to see God as having two hands, if you will. One hand is his visible hand, the way he works things that are seen, those we call miracles. And then God has another hand, figuratively speaking, and it is his hand where he works behind the scenes in unseen ways. That we call providence. And in the book of Esther, God is providentially working constantly because, again, as I said last week, God is not mentioned by name anywhere in the book of Esther, but he is clearly evident. And one of the first ways we see him evident in this story is he has intentionally positioned Esther as the queen of Persia, who is herself a Jew, so that she can have a very influential role in helping to whisper into the ear of the king in this very trying moment here. So God has orchestrated events here such that now Esther, queen of Persia, is in this very influential role. Because God understood and God knew, as he knows all things, that this evil, wicked, Satan-inspired plot to destroy the Jews is being hatched in the heart of Haman. And so God is already preemptively dealing with this. Esther is now queen of Persia. And chapter 4 tells us that Mordecai, which the Bible says became like her adoptive dad because her parents had died when she was young, he's her older cousin, that Mordecai hears about this edict to destroy all the Jews. He himself is a Jew, and he's mourning and grieving in the courtyard next to the palace. Now, Esther is somewhat sheltered about what is going on in Persia because she's living within the palace. She hears that Mordecai is crying and weeping. She sends out the chief eunuch of the king's palace, a guy by the name of Hathak. She says to Hathak, go out and find out what's wrong with Mordecai. And then there's this back and forth conversation in chapter 4 through Hathak the eunuch Back and forth from Mordecai to Esther, okay, because Esther's now queen. She doesn't kind of associate with the commoners, if you will. And so she's not out there to have a dialogue with Mordecai directly. So back and forth is this conversation. I want you to go to chapter 4 with me and look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 4, verse 6. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. All right, your attention. So Hathak takes this back to Esther. Here's the edict. This is what Mordecai is upset about. And he urges you, Queen Esther, to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy for the Jewish people. Now Esther has a vested interest in this because she herself is Jewish, right? But she sends word back, and I'll paraphrase it. She says, Tell Mordecai, I just can't go waltzing into the king's presence because even though she's queen, still in that day, the culture is you just don't jolly well go into the king's presence unless you're summoned. And if you're not summoned and you happen to rush in there because there's some urgency, the only way you won't be killed is if the king's in a good mood. He's had his coffee that morning and so he's in a decent mood and he extends the gold scepter to you. If you get the gold scepter, you're good to go. Otherwise, she says... I'm going to die if I do this. We're so glad you tuned in for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. 
Be sure to join us next time to continue the story of Queen Esther and discover her courage to help step into difficult or impossible situations. Esther was an orphan and part of an exiled group of people, yet God elevated her and used her in mighty ways. No matter who you are or what your situation is, God can use your life for His glory. He also promises to walk alongside you in every moment, providing strength, courage, and love everlasting. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. And you're invited to join us for weekend services of worship and learning together. Our services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. Or for more in-depth study time in the Word, join us Wednesday nights at 7. If you're not in the area, you can still hear more from Pastor Gary. Live stream our services or download the Cornerstone Connection app, providing you with access to our archive of teachings. Find out more at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so glad we had this time together today, and we encourage you to join us again for more in the book of Esther right here on Cornerstone Connection. 